Hello, and welcome back to another episode of A Little History, a history podcast which delves deep into the lives, legends, and legacies of some of the most famous, and sometimes not so famous, figures from France's past. From philosophers to politicians, artists to inventors, we will be looking into what makes them some of the most inspirational Frenchmen of all time. I'm your host, Matthew Price, and this week we will be taking a closer look into the life and work of perhaps one of the most celebrated philosophers of all time, the man who is widely regarded as one of the founders of modern philosophy, Descartes. Though it can be argued that Descartes never did a stroke of useful work in his life as philosophy is, after all, useless, he is credited with relaunching philosophy into the modern age. Philosophy had begun for the first time in the 6th century BC in ancient Greece, and, two centuries after, it had entered a golden era with the likes of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, and then, for nearly 2,000 years, nothing happened. At least, nothing original happened, until Descartes came onto the scene at a time which has since been called the Renaissance of art, culture and thinking. But who was Descartes, and how did he achieve such worldwide fame? To answer that, let me continue. Born to Joachim and Jean on the 31st of March 1596, René Descartes grew up in the small town of La Haye in the Creuse Valley, 30 miles south of Tours. René was the fourth child and his mother died following complications surrounding his birth. He was not expected to survive either, and was very frail during his youth. His father was a judge in the High Court of Brittany, which met at Rennes more than 140 miles away, meaning that he was at home for less than half the year. As a result, René and his siblings were brought up by their Catholic grandmother and great-uncle, at a time when the region was mostly controlled by Protestant Huguenots. His main attachment during his youth was to his nurse, for whom he retained the fondest regard, and was to pay for her upkeep and well-being until she died. Descartes spent a solitary childhood, accounted for due to his sickly nature, and quickly he learned to do without company, and from his early years he is known to have been introspective and reserved. At the age of 10, he was sent away as a boarder to a Jesuit college that had recently opened by King Henry IV at La Fleche. The school had been intended to serve the children of the local gentry, who had often dispensed with education in favour of hunting, hawking and half-hearted home homiletics. The rector of the college was a friend of the Descartes family, and so the fragile young René was given a room of his own and was allowed to get up as and when he pleased. As with most who were permitted such a privilege, this meant that Descartes rose around noon, a habit to which he strictly adhered to for the rest of his life. While the other pupils were being browbeaten by vicious and conceited Jesuits versed in the intricacies of scholasticism, the intelligent young Descartes was able to absorb his learning in a more relaxed atmosphere, and by the time it had arrived that he was to leave, it was apparent that Descartes had learned far more than anyone else in the school, and his health appeared to have completely recovered. Yet, despite having carried home a majority of the school's prizes, Descartes retained a deep ambivalence towards his education and seemed to have been to him largely a waste of time. Rehashed Aristotle with centuries of interpretations, the oppressive theology of Aquinas, which had answered for everything but which answered nothing, and a morass of metaphysics. Nothing he had learned seemed to have any certainty whatsoever, except, perhaps, for mathematics. In a life devoid of all the certainties of home, family and meaningful contact, Descartes craved certainty in the only realm in which he felt comfortable, intellect. 
He had left school disappointed and, like Socrates before him, was convinced he knew nothing. When Descartes left La Flèche at the age of 18, he was sent to the University of Poitiers to study law at the behest of his father, who intended that René take up a respectable position in the legal profession, just as he and his elder brother had done. In those days, such positions were largely filled by nepotism, a system that succeeded in producing approximately the same percentage of ludicrous and inadequate judges as today. But after spending two years studying law and having received a degree and licence to practice canon and civil law, Descartes decided that he'd had enough of it. By this time, he had come into the possession of a number of small rural holdings that he'd inherited from his mother, and these, he felt, gave him enough of an income to live as he pleased. He therefore decided to leave Poitiers for Paris to pursue his thoughts. Needless to say, his father was not satisfied with the decision, as the Descartes were gentlemen and were not expected to spend their time thinking. There was nothing he could do, however. His son was now a man, and free one at that. After two years, Descartes had grown tired of his bachelor existence in Paris. Despite having devoted himself to a wide range of studies, as well as composing a number of Delian-ish treatises, he was becoming more and more involved in the capital's social life, which he found utterly tedious, and so he withdrew to a quiet neighbourhood where he lived in seclusion, all the while pursuing his thoughts and peace, which made his next move all the more extraordinary. With a desire to see the world, Descartes joined the Royal Dutch Army. In 1618, he went to Holland and signed on as an unpaid officer in the Prince of Orange's Protestant army, which was preparing to defend the United Provinces of the Netherlands against the Catholic Spanish who sought to retake their former colony. What the Dutch made of this aloof French Catholic gentleman with no military experience, who claimed to have done a bit of fencing and riding at school, is difficult to judge. He spoke no Dutch and stuck resolutely to his routine of rising at noon. Perhaps they just didn't notice him as he sat in his tent composing an essay on music or some such. We do know, however, that Dickach found himself bored by life in the army. In his view, there was too much idleness and dissipation, which leads to a key question. Were there officers who rose even later than he did? One afternoon, while strolling through the streets of Breda, Dickach noticed a poster being erected on a wall. In the manner of the time, it outlined an unsolved mathematical problem and challenged all comers to solve it. While Descartes did not understand the instructions, since they were in Dutch, he turned to a Dutch gentleman beside him and asked whether he would be kind enough to translate. The Dutchman was obviously unimpressed by this ignorant young French officer and replied that he would translate the poster as long as Descartes was willing to try and solve the problem and bring him the solution. The following day, he returned to the Dutchman's house where, to the Dutchman's surprise, he had not only solved the problem, but had done so in an exceptionally brilliant way. According to Descartes' first biographer, this was how he met Isaac Beekman, the renowned Dutch philosopher and mathematician. The two were to remain close friends, corresponding regularly for the next two decades, and it was Beekman who would revive Descartes' interest in mathematics and philosophy, which had laid dormant since he had left La Flèche. After a year or so in the Dutch army, Descartes set off on a summer tour of Germany and the Baltic. 
he then decided to try another spell at army life and travelled to the small town of Neuburg in southern Germany, where the army of Maximilian, Duke of Bavaria, was camped in its winter quarters on the upper reaches of the river Danube. Army life here appears to have been as strenuous as ever for Dicker, who described how he took up residence in fine warm quarters, persisted in his habit of sleeping ten hours, rising at noon, and spent his waking hours communing with my own thoughts. The political situation in Europe was now becoming serious, though it's difficult to deduce this from Dicker's attitude. The Bavarians had gone to war against Frederick V, the elector Palatinate and the Protestant king of Bohemia. The entire continent was sliding rapidly into the long and disastrous conflict that was to become known as the Thirty Years' War. This war, with its ever-changing fortunes affecting countries from Sweden to Italy, was to continue until virtually the end of Dicker's life, leaving large areas of Europe, especially Germany, devastated and deserted. Yet the effect of war on Dicker, even when he was in the army, appears to have been minimal. That said, one cannot help suspecting that this persistent background of political uncertainty, along with Dicker's own psychological uncertainties, somehow contributed to the deep internal need for more certainty that was to characterise his entire philosophy. Meanwhile, the Bavarian winter set in, and soon the snow lay deep, crisp and even. Dicker found it so cold that he claims to have taken to living in a stove, a subject of much debate. While some argue that Dicker meant a well-heated room or a sauna, he used the French word poêle, which, at the time, unquestionably meant a stove. While sitting in his stove one day, Dicker had a vision. Though it's not entirely certain what he saw, from his descriptions, it appears to be in some sort of mathematical picture of the world, which subsequently led Dicker to believe that the workings of the entire universe could be solved with the application of some universal mathematical science. That night, when Dicker went to sleep, he had another three vivid dreams. In the first, he found himself struggling against an overpowering wind, trying to make his way towards his old college of La Flèche. At one point, he turns to greet someone, and the wind flings him against a church wall, and then, from the middle of the college courtyard, someone calls to him that a friend of his has a melon which he wants to give to him. In the next dream, Dicker is overcome with terror, and hears a noise like a crack of lightning, after which the darkness of his room is filled with a myriad of sparks. The last dream is even less clear, in the course of which he sees a dictionary and a book of poetry on his desk, this is then followed by a number of the usual inconsequential and highly symbolic happenings that never fail to delight the dreamer and bore the listener. Dicker then decides, in his dream, to interpret these happenings, the consequence of which would probably have given us a great deep insight into Dicker's understanding of himself, but unfortunately his biographer, Baye, loses track and begins to ramble at this point. However, the events of that winter day in November 1619 and the following night were to have a profound and lasting effect upon Dicker. He believed that this vision and the ensuing dreams had revealed to him his God-given vocation and were to give him a much-needed confidence in his calling. If it was not for this experience, the brilliant dilettante might have never realised his vocation. It is important to note, and ironic to think, that Dicker, the great rationalist, should have found his inspiration in a mystical vision and highly irrational dreams. This element in Dicker's thinking is often overlooked in French teaching, in which the great Gallic hero and hypnophile is often held up as a rationalist exemplar. Though Dicker's dreams have attracted a wide variety of explanations, 
It is likely what Didgar considered to be a second dream was actually an episode of exploding head syndrome in which a person experiences unreal noises that are loud and short when falling asleep and whose cause is largely unknown, although it might have had something to do with overheating in his stove. Upon awakening, he had formulated analytical geometry and the idea of applying mathematical method to philosophy. He concluded from these visions that the pursuit of science would prove to be, for him, the pursuit of true wisdom and a central part of his life's work. Dickow also saw very clearly that all truths were linked with one another, so that finding a fundamental truth and proceeding with logic would open the way to all science. As a result of his visions and the ensuing dreams, Dickow vowed that he would now dedicate his life to his intellectual studies and would make a pilgrimage and thanksgiving to the shrine of Our Lady in Loretta in Italy. But, being such an indecisive character, for the next seven years Dickow instead wandered aimlessly around Europe, though he did manage to visit Loretta five years later. Sometime during this period, probably in 1623, Dickow returned home to La Haye and sold all the property he had inherited from his mother. He then invested the cash and bonds, which were to provide him with a sound income for the rest of his life. One would think that during the course of this particular trip, he might have stopped to see his family, but this is far from certain. Although we know he never quarrelled with his family, it is apparent that he was to remain utterly detached from them, and, despite his freedom to travel Europe at will, he never returned to see his brother and sisters marry, and nor did he visit his father on his deathbed. Towards the end of this period, Dicker spent an increasing amount of time in Paris, where he met an old school friend from La Flèche, Marat Mersenne, who had since taken the cloth. Father Mersenne had become a highly respected man of learning and was in contact with some of the greatest minds in Europe, and his cell had become a sort of clearinghouse for the latest ideas in mathematical, scientific and philosophical thinking. This was just the kind of friend that Dicker needed, and he was to correspond with Mersenne for the rest of his life. Dicker spent the majority of his time in Paris locked in his room studying. Occasionally, friends would visit him to discuss ideas and sometimes he could even be persuaded to venture outside for more formal occasions. In 1628, Dicker retired to the north of France to live in seclusion and to devote himself entirely to his thinking. His Parisian friends continued to visit him, however, and so he journeyed even further afield, until he settled in Holland, where he lived in isolation for nearly two decades until the year before his death. Settled is a very relative term where Degach is concerned, however. During the first 15 years of his residence in Holland, he is known to have changed address more than 18 times, and, in between, when the settled domestic routine became unbearably dull to him, he travelled abroad. Only Father Mersenne can keep up with his whereabouts, and this constant movement has been put down to Dickach's love of solitude, although it seems to speak of some deeper restlessness as well. In the course of travelling, or even just moving house, one cannot help meeting people if only in passing fashion, and this unending movement suggests that Dickach's solitude was not entirely self-sufficient. He was lonely, but found it impossible to make contact with people except in the most trivial of manners. Dicker had servants and appears to have cut quite a personable figure. 
His portraits tend to depict a pale-faced gentleman in a dark, flowing wig of a period, and his mustachioed features gave him a certain saturnine charm. He is said to have dressed in the fashionable knee-breeches of the time, with black silk stockings and silver buckled shoes. He always wore a silver scarf around his neck to protect it from the cold, for he was said to have been very sensitive to even the slightest change in temperature. Despite this, he chose to live in Holland, a country notorious for its rain, fog and ice. A contemporary Frenchman described the country as four months of winter followed by eight months of cold. Perhaps this was the ideal place for a hypochondriac. Holland, however, had one great advantage. In the 17th century, it was the duty-free zone of the European mind. Unlike in other European nations, you didn't have to pay for your ideas, and the tolerant Dutch had done away with such items as the Inquisition, heresy, the rack, and burning at the stake. Critical accolades that greeted original thinkers elsewhere in Europe, and of the four great thinkers who produced original philosophy during the 17th century, no less than three Dicker, Spinoza and Locke lived in Holland. Partly as a result of this liberal atmosphere, Holland also became a thriving hub of the printing industry, with works by such advanced thinkers including Galileo and Hobbes being published in the country. It was a time when new ideas thrived in Holland as nowhere else in Europe. Dicker began this productive period of his life with high hopes, and as a result of his vision in the Bavarian stove, he conceived of a universal science capable of embracing all human knowledge. This, however, was much more than just a revolutionary new method, as Dicker had conceived of a system that would not only include all knowledge, but also unite it. This system would be free of all prejudices and assumptions, and would be based on certainty alone. It would start from basic principles, which were themselves self-evident, and would build up from there. Descartes foresaw immense advances from his system, and he confidently predicted that when his new scientific method was applied to medicine, it would be able to slow the ageing process. Descartes began writing a treatise that he called Rules of the Direction of the Mind. In order to discover the universal science, he argued, we first had to adopt a method of thinking properly. This method consisted of following two rules of simple operation, intuition and deduction. Of intuition, Descartes defined it as the conception, without doubt, of an unclouded and attentive mind, which is formed by the light of reason alone. Deduction was defined as necessary interference from other facts which are known as certain. Descartes' celebrated method, which came to be known as the Cartesian method, lay in the correct application of these two rules of thought. By this time, Descartes was gaining a reputation as a thinker of a wide range of philosophical and scientific subjects. In March 1629, the people and certain senior cardinals began observing UFOs in the sky above Rome. As the sun set, a solar halo would appear with orbiting spots of brilliant light, and letters were sent to Descartes as well as other leading thinkers asking their opinion of these visions. 
Descartes was so intrigued by this conundrum that for a time he gave up on his philosophical thinking to concentrate on the matter and, though he had suspicions about the cause of such phenomena, he refused to commit himself until several years later, by which point he had completed an entire discourse on the subject. In this, as in many other matters, Descartes was alive during a brief and possibly unique era of human thought, and the new explanations of natural phenomena put forward by contemporary academics were, in many cases, both plausible and comprehensible. They also tended to be rational and, in their overall conception, simple. Having laid down his rules for the workings of the mind, Descartes now set about for the outer world. For the next three years, he composed an essay on the universe which contained his ideas on an enormous range of scientific subjects, including meteors, dioptrics and geometry. Just as he was about to send his paper to Father Mersenne for publication in Paris, news came that Galileo had been charged with heresy, was brought before the Inquisition and was forced to swear that he admired, cursed and rejected his scientific works. More specifically, this referred to his belief in Copernicus's theory that the Earth revolved around the Sun, and Descartes immediately asked his friend Beekman for a copy of Galileo's work, and found to his dismay that many of the Italian astronomers' conclusions were identical to his own. Without a word to anyone, he put away his treatise on the universe and turned his thoughts to less controversial matters. The work was not published until long after his death, and then still only in parts. Descartes' life was riven by dichotomies. He longed for peace and solitude, yet his loneliness drove him to almost obsessive travelling. As a daringly original thinker, he vowed to follow my thoughts wherever they might lead, yet as a man he swore to obey the laws of my country, adhere to the religion of my fathers, and follow the example of the wisest men I meet. While he was sure that what he had written on the universe was correct, he also believed in the God of the Church and was afraid to contradict the teachings of the Bible. Yet the greatest dichotomy that beset Descartes lay in his philosophy. He saw the world as consisting of two kinds of substance, mind and matter. Mind was unextended and invisible. Matter was extended and divisible and obeyed the laws of physics. That meant that our incorporeal mind was lodged in a mechanistic body. But how could the mind, which had no extension, interact with a body which can only obey the laws of science? Descartes never managed to satisfactorily solve this problem, which so uncannily reflected the psychological problems that tormented his daily life. He did try to find an answer, however. According to Descartes, the mind and the body interact in the pineal gland, whose exact functions remain uncertain to this day. The question was not so much where they interact, but how. At this point in Descartes' life, a rare human element came to fruition. He had an affair with a girl named Hélène, who may have been one of his servants. As a result, he had a daughter, who he named Francine, and after her birth, Hélène lived nearby and regularly visited Descartes, who, ashamed of having had a child out of wedlock, passed his daughter off as his niece. From these few facts, it is difficult to know for certain what kind of relationship he had with Hélène, but it is of course easy enough to imagine. 
Despite having first rebuffed his daughter, Dickard later grew to love her, and she offered him a unique emotional experience in his life. By now, he was writing what is often considered his most original work, his Discourse on Method. The majority of this new book consisted on the safer portions from his treatise on the universe, which had contained ideas that were to change the face of mathematics and make several revolutionary advances in the fields of science. In this work, Descartes laid the foundations of modern analytic geometry and introduced coordinates. In optics, he proposed the law of diffraction and put forward explanations as to the cause of rainbows. But by far and away, perhaps the most important part of the Discourse on Method is the comparatively brief introduction which outlines the thinking that was to change the course of philosophy as a whole, written in a style that was both comprehensible and readable. How is it possible to convey profoundly original philosophical insights with such clarity so that anyone can understand them? Though the conundrum has defeated many of the great philosophical thinkers, Plato thought he had cracked it by setting out his philosophy in the form of dinner party conversations. Nietzsche thought he'd found the answer by writing the most brilliant, subtle and powerful prose penned in German, and Wittgenstein attempted to circumvent the problem by allowing for the attention span of the TV age and writing brilliant two-line remarks. Dickard, however, succeeded in overcoming the problem by the simplest and most obvious method of them all. In clear, autobiographical prose, he described how he goes about his thinking and the thoughts that occur to him in the process. When you read Dickard, you experience what it's like to be a great mind in original philosophy, and he describes it so deceptively well that you think it is easy. In fact, it appears no different to the way you might think, and step by step you follow him to his conclusion. He begins by taking the reader back to the snow-covered earth of Bavaria and the time of his vision. Winter set in and I found myself in a spot where there was no society of any interest, he writes. At a time, I was unworried by the cares or passions, so I took to spending my time in a stove where I could be alone with my thoughts. In a surprisingly cool tone, he then went on to describe how it is possible by means of persistent doubt for us to destroy our belief in the entire fabric of the world around us. Nothing remains certain. The whole universe, our own individuality, our own existence even, may all be a dream. We have no way of knowing anything for certain except for one thing. No matter how deluded I may be in my thoughts about myself and the world, he explains, there is just one thing that is undeniable. I am thinking. This alone proves to be my existence. In the most famous remark in philosophy, Descartes concludes, I think, therefore, I am. Having had the courage to doubt the entire universe, Descartes sensibly chose to publish his work anonymously, especially after having seen what happened to Galileo. As well as having published the work in Latin, he also chose to publish it in French with the hope to reach a wider audience. He wished to avoid controversy with the church and hoped to do so by appealing to people who were interested in the new sciences and, astonishingly, this almost worked. Almost. Whereas people soon determined the author of Discourse on Method, they were more interested in its mathematical and scientific theories. 
While he revolutionized the field of optics by discovering the law of refraction, his advances were even more revolutionary when he introduced the notion of coordinates which enabled the identification of a fixed point of reference to a horizontal and vertical plane. He also introduced algebra to solve geometric problems, thus founding analytic geometry. Mathematicians were, at first, fascinated, but soon became outraged. For most of us, the one thing certain about mathematics is that it is either correct or it is not. Such a naive approach immediately disqualifies one from a realm of true mathematics. Having read Descartes' new mathematical theories and recognising their originality, all the great mathematicians of his time were soon gunning for him, and shortly afterwards were trying desperately to disprove him. Philosophy, on the other hand, both begins and ends like this. When someone is described as having a philosophical attitude, you can be sure that they are not a philosopher, which is something that Descartes quickly discovered. After the mathematicians, it was then the philosopher's turn to attack his work, and in no time at all, Descartes found himself in trouble with the church. Fortunately, Descartes' friends banded to defend him, and, perhaps even more fortunately, Descartes was living in Holland. Or rather, moving in Holland. For the 15th time since taking up residence in the Netherlands, Descartes moved once again in 1638 to Amsfurt, near the ancient university city of Utrecht. By now his daughter was five years old, and Descartes planned to send her to France so that she could be a fine young lady. Suddenly, however, Francine took ill and died. Naturally, Descartes was devastated, and it was the most bitter blow he was to suffer in his lifetime. The tragedy took place just as he was finishing his meditations, which is generally considered to be his masterpiece. Although not as immediately appealing as the discourse on method, it is graced with the same felicity of style, and its French is a model expression of abstract thought. This time, he took the precaution of passing his latest manuscript past Father Mersenne in Paris, asking him to circulate it so that he might discover the opinions of the learned. Descartes wished to have the approval of scholars and the church for his new publication, which contained elaborations of ideas first put forward in the discourse on method. This time, he proposed an even more comprehensive programme of doubt in which the entire universe, even the truths we know about geometry or the dressing gown he wears while sitting in front of a fire, may be the work of a millennium unseen being deceiving him and, once again, the doubtful workings of Descartes' mind arrive at the same indisputable cog. In his paper, he even goes so far to prove the existence of God, with arguments first mentioned by St Anselm and Thomas Aquinas, presumably to make the church more comfortable about his theories. Descartes had no ambitions for martyrdom, and though he possessed many of the qualifications for obscurity, he appeared to have no ambitions for this direction either. He wanted to be heard, but perhaps more importantly, he wanted to be accepted. He was utterly convinced that he was right, but he wanted the church to be convinced as well. After many objections and replies from leading academic and religious scholars, Meditations was finally published in 1641. Inevitably, the publication provoked an even worse furor than the discourse on method had done. The Jesuits correctly realised that Cartesian doubt and incognito ergo sum spelled the end of scholastic philosophy in Aquinas. Worse still for Descartes, this time the controversy spilled over into the Netherlands, in which the president of the University of Utrecht accused him of atheism. Even more damaging attacks came from other important Dutch figures, accusing him of heresy. 
In the 17th century, atheism was one thing, but heresy was another matter entirely. Fortunately, the French ambassador intervened on Descartes' behalf, and, eventually, the controversy waned somewhat, but for years afterwards, neither Descartes himself nor his works were allowed to be mentioned within the precincts of the University of Utrecht. Descartes was now renowned throughout Europe, his fame stretching so far beyond the intellectual world that he was even read by royalty. When the young Queen Christina of Sweden encountered one of his books, she was so impressed that she invited him to her court. By now, the long, hard years of rising at noon and the gentlemanly meditation were beginning to take their toll on Descartes, and, although he was only 53 years old, he hadn't moved home for nearly four years and was living in a small estate north of Amsterdam on the Dutch coast. The prospect of a long journey north to Sweden did not appeal much to Descartes, but Queen Christina was a determined woman, and Descartes was her chance to turn Stockholm into the intellectual palace of the north, and she was not going to let him slip from her grasp. To reinforce her invitation, she sent an admiral and a warship to collect him, but Descartes declined and sent to the waiting admiral a message stating, Her Majesty was created in the image of God to a greater degree than the rest of mankind but pray to be excused from basking in the sunbeams of her glorious presence. Queen Christina undoubtedly stamped her foot in objection and sent another ship to collect the immobile philosopher. Descartes, who had defeated the finest minds in Europe in intellectual argument, was forced to concede defeat and, in October 1649, he sailed for Stockholm. There, he was welcomed by the Queen and had two personal audiences with her. She appeared to have observed a little philosophy from the study of his works, and then she found she had other matters to attend to. Descartes was left to amuse himself for six weeks while the bitter Swedish winter set in, until mid-January, when Christina decided it was time to start her philosophy lessons again. The Queen, he was informed, would have three lessons a week, each starting at five in the morning. This was bad news for Descartes, who, even in the army, had never risen before 11 o'clock, and the shock of rising at four in the deep Scandinavian winter is not even worth imagining. Within two weeks, he caught a chill, which turned into pneumonia. A week later, he became delirious, and on February 11th, 1650, he died. minds of Europe had been sacrificed to the whim of royalty, and, perhaps even more shameful, as a Catholic and Protestant Sweden, this deeply religious man could not be buried in sacred ground, but had to be interred in the cemetery for unbaptized children. Thirteen years later, 
the Catholic Church honoured Didgaff's memory by placing all his works on its index of banned books, while later his body was transferred to Paris where it was reinterred and, during the revolution, it was proposed that he should be exhumed once again and this time buried in the Parvenon, alongside other great French thinkers. A vote was put to the National Assembly and, in an unusual move, the members were split along scientific lines. Those who favoured Didgaff's mechanistic view of the universe and those who supported the Newtonian theory of gravity. Dicard had proposed the theory of vortices to explain how the universe worked. His theory maintained that the movement of one particle affected the movement of all other particles throughout the universe. This took place through a series of interlocking vortices, which encompassed everything from the solar system and stars down to the tiniest of particles. This would have, of course, resulted in a system of fiendish complexity such as only a mathematician could devise, yet it points to a matter of some interest in the evolution of human thought. Dicard's theory bears passing resemblance to both the double helix of DNA and the superstring theory of ultimate particles. Also, in his long search for a force that could interact between mind and body, Dicard was looking for something similar to radio waves or electricity. Formerly, the truth had been the province of theology. Now it had entered the realm of democracy. Dicard didn't fit into either. Finally, the Newtonians managed to win a defeat against the Cartesians. Gravity had won its day, and Dicard's body had to wait to be buried somewhere else. Appropriately, he is now buried in the church of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, in the heart of the Latin Quarter in Paris, where his tradition of doubtful thinking and rising at noon is staunchly maintained to this day. Greatly considered the greatest engineer of his time and one of the most important in Western military history, his principles for fortifications were widely used for nearly a century, while aspects of his offensive tactics remained in use until the mid-20th century. Join me next time as we look into the extraordinary life and legacy of Louis XIV's chief military engineer, Sébastien Leprestre Vauban. This was a little history a long-wave podcast by MDBP Productions 2020. This podcast was written, edited, and produced by me, Matthew Price. <laughs>